He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I greet you in the name of Jesus Christ today. We're glad that you have chosen to join us for this week's sermon of the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene. God's Word is full of timeless truths that are relevant to our lives today. Here's this week's message. This week, we're going to be kind of coming to a conclusion on our sermon series over the last uh, month. We have been talking about sacrifice and, uh, and, and what that looks like in Scripture. So we've kind of gone through some major moments, stories in Scripture that showed what sacrifice is about. And we learned from the very beginning that with Abram and God, that a sacrifice often marked, remember, the beginning of a relationship with God, the beginning of that covenant, that agreement that uh, God is going to indeed bless and we are going to respond in faithfulness. Then we, we looked at some of the history of sacrifice in Leviticus and found that the sacrifices there were, were largely to help people say, I want to draw closer to God. If there's anything I have done that I did not even realize I had done, that maybe someone else told me about, or I come to realize later, that might separate me from God, I want to remedy that. And so there were sacrificial practices by which any of the sins that they had unwillingly committed, unwittingly committed even, that they would come and they would bring the sacrifice and God would restore them. And one of the things we found out is indeed that the imagery that their sacrifice was supposed to draw them closer to God, that they would even sprinkle that which was sacrificed out towards the altar as, as a symbol that they have been redeemed and their redemption brings them closer to God. Then last week we saw indeed that there are many ways in which the church has tried to come to terms with Why did the Messiah die on the cross? A story, indeed, we're going to hear about and tell over the next couple of weeks. As they came to find out, why did this have to happen? And then they they asked, and why would God raise this one from the dead? There are many ways ways in which the Scriptures have talked about it. Luke has his own way of talking about it. Paul, in the the book of Romans, has, has his own way of talking about it. But for the book of Hebrews... He uses the metaphor of the sacrifice, the sacrificial system that they're used to. And he says that Jesus functions in much of the same way as the sacrifices in Leviticus, that the purpose is that we might be able to be drawn closer to God, that God desires and hopes that we would draw near to Him. And so this is kind of what we've gone over And that if Jesus, in this metaphor, has indeed been raised from the dead and gone to be with God, this one who was crucified, this one who still has all the marks of having been on the cross, goes to the heavens, goes to where God is. And so he goes there in much the same way as a high priest once a year during the Day of Atonement would go into the Holy of Holies to clean that out. Or uh, he goes before God in much the same way as the sacrifice was meant to bring the people closer to God, so in the same way Jesus brings us all before God. And these are kind of the meanings behind the metaphor. And so we come to Hebrews chapter 10. 
and uh, verse 19, and it begins with therefore, as if, you know, he's just said all of this kind of stuff, but I've just kind of recapsulated it for you uh, in this moment. So uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says, Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. Let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. For if we willfully persist in sin after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who's violated the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by those who have spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified, and outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, The Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall those earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and persecution, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. And for you had compassion for those who were in prison. And you cheerfully accepted that you yourselves possessed, uh, you cheerfully accepted the plundering of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves possessed better, something better and more lasting. Do not therefore abandon the confidence of yours. It brings a great reward, for you need endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a little while, the one who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous will live by faith. My soul takes no pleasure in anyone who shrinks back. But we are not among those who shrink back and so are lost, but among those who have faith and so are saved. Hebrews tells us, because Jesus has entered into heaven, the eternal sanctuary, the the actual holy of holies where God is, that we also can have confidence now. You see, the the tradition, of course, then was that uh, the priest would bring the offering of the people and they could never get to where it was understood God dwelled. And you see, we've always understood God desires to dwell among His people. From the very beginning in Genesis, you have God walking with Adam and Eve, walking with humanity in the garden. Afterwards, uh, in Exodus, you have Him going with His people in the sign of the cloud, leading them to the promised land. And then he would tell them that he would dwell among them in this temple that they built. And so that was that there's always been a part of the understanding of God's people that God wants to walk and be with us and wants us to live in his presence. 
And yet, they were never able to get very close to where it was understood God lived. A priest, a high priest, was the only one who could get very close. And even then, he did so with much trepidation, often so scared that he might die that whenever he had to go in, they'd tie a rope around his waist just so they could pull him out, if so. And so there was this understanding that God is too holy and too separate to draw near. But yet, when Hebrew says we can enter with confidence, it's because of this. Jesus has entered into that place for all eternity, sits at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. And what this means is two things. One, it means Jesus is speaking on our behalf. He's speaking to welcome us to come to speak with God. But it also means God the Father in raising up the one who was crucified, in raising up the one who took on our sins, became the representative for our sins, and allowing that one who still bears the moons and the marks of sin, that one who by all the cleanliness codes of the Old Testament now would not be considered clean, is allowed inside His throne room in heaven. And so now indeed, because of Jesus, we as broken, as unclean as we might be, are nonetheless able because of Jesus to approach the throne of grace. This is the promise that Hebrews is telling us. This was something that actually took us a long way to long time in the history of the church to really kind of internalize and come to terms with. For a long time in the history of the church, we went back to the priest is the only one who gets you closer to God. And so if you wanted to get close to God, you had to go to the priest and you had to ask the priest, what do I need to do to get closer to God? I had a friend of mine who likes to give me a hard time. He's somebody who... um, Uh, doesn't go to church, but uh, knows I'm a pastor. And so every now and again, he'll joke with me. And so just the other night, we were talking. He said, hey, Tim, I just did a sin. How many Hail Marys do I got to do? And so like, I was like, all right, all right, all right. And so, so, uh, you know, we just, you just kind of mess with each other a little bit. And so uh, 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 he asked me this, but like, it was really a question like, okay, what do I got to do? And you'd always have to go to somebody. But in, uh, uh, around the time of Martin Luther, 15th century, he he recognizes, hey, we are all saved by grace. This story, this confession that Jesus has entered into the heavens, he sits before God and intercedes on our behalf. And indeed, God has welcomed one such as this into the heavens is a sign indeed that all of us can approach God directly, that priesthood of all believers. All of us can approach God the throne of grace, because Jesus is always welcoming us. He's always inviting us into the presence of God. All the necessary cleansing has already taken place. All of it. In the metaphor of, oh wait, but do I have to do something in order to get closer to God first? Jesus has already done anything that needs to be done. And so this is, this is the testimony of Hebrews. And he does warn us. I mean, verse 26 through 31 are kind of the scary verses. They are the verses that kind of reflect a little bit of what even one of our early Scripture readings are. That reminder, of, as gracious as God is, that you, you may not want to, as it says, uh, fall into the hands of the living God. 
And so there is some worry. There is some concern here. There was a, uh, a lady I, to, uh, to talk about this. I, I have to go back to a story. Uh, back when I was in high school, actually, there's a lady in the church who took me home uh, one day from a youth event. Now, you've got to understand, I drove... Uh, my parents were living in Watertown, Wisconsin. We had gotten connected with a Nazarene church when we were living 50 minutes. Uh, well, we were living uh, closer to the church, and now we were living 50 minutes away. We were going to Milwaukee First Church of the Nazarene, and now here we are in this little town in Wisconsin called Watertown. It's a 50-minute drive. And so uh, my parents would, you know, would drive me there for church, drive me there for youth events. Like, it was a lot of driving. To those of you in the church who commutes and have to drive here, and I know that there are people who do, I want to say thank you, I understand, <laughs> and I completely get that kind of commitment. And, uh, and so they, they, would do, they would make that drive, 50 minutes uh, drive back and forth. Unless, of course, we were running late, my parents really had to get there, my dad put on the pedal, <laughs> put the pedal down, and we might make it in 45. But, uh, uh, but it was a long drive. But I remember one time, my parents had taken me there, and for whatever reason, they couldn't get me home. But a lady in the church said, oh, I'll drive you home. And I thought, man, this is amazing. Like, she's going 50 minutes out of her way to take us home. Come on, that's two hours, and not to mention the gas. I mean, two years ago, or 20 years ago, the gas was cheaper than it is now. But nonetheless, 20 years ago, we still complained about the price of gas. So, you know, like it was a sacrifice. And so, so she's, she is uh, driving, uh, driving me home. And, uh, and I remember, her, her name was Jane. I remember she asked me a question as we pulled into the outskirts of Watertown, getting close to the, to the house. She asked me a question that was, uh, that was a question that had been asked a lot uh, uh, 20, 30 years ago. And she asked me, she said, uh, she said, I want to ask you, Tim, if you died today, do you know if you'd go to heaven? This was her question. If you died today, do you know you would go to heaven? And this, this question, it was, it was and often is the classic like starter for evangelism, the starter for we want to know if you feel confident of where you are with God. If you died today, would you go to heaven? Now, I had been uh, involved in church for a while. I had uh, confessed my faith in Jesus. I had been praying. I had been baptized. All this. She asked me this question, and immediately, instead of my mind going to a yes or no answer, and that, I think, is all she wanted. Uh, it's all she was looking for was a classic yes or no answer. My mind, because I tend to overthink things, all of a sudden went to, wait, why is she asking me this? Oh, no. Did I do something? Did she catch me doing something I should have done? Did, did, is, does she doubt me? Oh, no. Oh, no. What did I do? What, where did I go wrong? Did I offend her somehow? Like, like I'm, My mind immediately goes to not the answer of the question, but the motivation behind the question. Have you ever done that before? Uh, and so I found myself all of a sudden wrapped up in all these doubts because I have no clue why she asked questions. And the very fact that she asked me the question made me go, I don't know. <laughs> and so I said, I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think, and, and, and of course, she shared with me that part, part of our faith, part of the promise is that God's Spirit wants us to not live in doubt and fear and that we can have that assurance. And, uh, but, but in saying I don't know, I think sometimes when we read a passage like Hebrews, 
verse 26, if we willfully persist in sin after, sin, after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. I think sometimes we read verse 26, and it's like Jane just asks us that question all over again. Oh, wait a minute. But wait a minute, did did, did I do a sin? Did I do something wrong? Oh no, am I okay? And all of a sudden, all the doubts start to creep in. And we start to go, oh no, what is it? Like, like I could do a whole series, not just on sacrifice, but on like what sin is and what that looks like. And, And sin is far more than just one thing or a multitude of one things that are done. It is, in many ways, a condition of living without any concern for God, or without any concern for the things of God. It is basically living apart from and distinct from who God is. That's part of the reason why the whole sacrificial language is, hey, coming to recognize that we are far apart and trying to get closer to God, trying to live in righteousness. But I think Hebrews actually defines what that looks like for us. And just a couple verses later when he says it's this, Spurning the Son of God, profaning the blood of the covenants by which we're sanctified, outraging the Spirit of grace. It's in effect saying and denying that Jesus has done anything at all for us. Or or living as if God's grace just kind of, you know, gives me liberty to do whatever I want to whoever I want and hurt whatever I want, because whatever, God will forgive me, right? That is abusing The grace, it's not following God or His plan for us. And you see, Jesus is all about restoring that relationship, all about restoring that which has been broken. And so to profane that is to say, there's no chance that God even is still interested in who I am or in what I'm doing. That is the sin Hebrews is talking about. So that when we read this and hear this, my hope is that we would read it and hear it uh, in the context of what is sandwiched around it. When he says things like, but recall what Jesus has done. Recall what was done earlier and how God has been with you along these ways. That, that God's purpose and His plan is indeed that we would live in His presence. And this affects how we live. It should affect how we live. Our hope and our faith affects how we live. Hebrews says that we should be provoking one another to good deeds, encouraging one another, lifting each other up. As I look over the last year, I'm encouraged by that in the church. I'm encouraged by the ways that we do that. We have met, we have worshipped, we've joined in discipleship together, praying with each other, studying with each other, uh, uh, helping each other up, encouraging each other in times of needs. I, I, I've seen in the last year, I've seen things like an electric, electronic iPad given to someone in a rehabilitation center. Uh, our church has sent out support to a Reverend Hilton, so a, a pastor in the church who I found out was having a really, really hard time, but the DS, uh, and when we talked with the DS and said, hey, give this to someone in need. That's his name. That was who, uh, uh, who he gave and said, Hey, uh, this comes from Cape Elizabeth and wants you to know that you're cared for. We have sent flowers to those who have uh, uh, been recovering from surgery. There's been calls, there's been cards, there's been trips, there's been helps. We have acted as a church family together. 
We are followers of Christ committed to the call to live out the hope that we have together. I shared a few weeks ago when we had our special Ash Wednesday service. I said something happened that I haven't seen happen in any church I've served in the last 15 years. Is Whenever there's a special service, you never get the same number of people showing up to a special service as you get in a morning service. But we did. Like when Hebrew says, don't neglect gathering together as is the habit of some, you have lived that out. Uh, Hebrews calls us to have compassion for those in prison, to accept those who, who, who maybe they're in prison because they've plundered you and done you wrong, but yet have compassion for those. And we have done that as we have welcomed in the Transformation Project and learned about their work and have included them in the missionary work that uh, we want to support in our uh, giving here at the church. And I know that there are some in the church who have said, hey, I want to find out more about what they do, get involved more in what they do and how they are helping out. And I want to say thank you, church, for that. Uh, so uh, we, we see indeed that this call to the church and to Christian living that Hebrews has for us is something that we as a church have begun and can continue. Hebrews uh, continues on by saying, don't abandon the confidence that you have. He, he, he calls them to endurance, knowing that in the past they have had hard times, knowing that in the past they have had to suffer, but yet even today they will be able to live despite that in faithfulness to the God who has loved them and been with them, the God who has continually throughout the history of their people been with them at the hardest times. And thankfully, we have the Spirit of Jesus Christ with us today as well. His Holy Spirit uh, desires to work in our lives and to be with us. We have spent this entire Lent season so far talking about the sacrifice of the Old Testament and the sacrifice of Jesus. Let us be willing to make our lives a sacrifice for our God inviting His Holy Spirit into our lives. In the the Church of the Nazarene, we believe that the Holy Spirit wants to work in our lives, changing us, drawing us close to Him, removing sin from our life, and helping us to live a life full of love for God and for our neighbor. And this is what we call a life of holiness. And all that's necessary on our part is just a willingness to allow the Spirit to work, a way of putting our lives before God and saying, you first, not me. This is, this is what I mean when I say we, we make a sacrifice before God. We, we start saying, you first, not me. This is walking in or living in the power of the Holy Spirit. That we would invite God to be in our lives just as He has always desired to be in the presence of His people. Hebrews recalls that when they had the hard days and they struggled with suffering and persecution... He reminds them when the past didn't look so good. And, and we can look back on, on moments in our life that didn't look so good. Or we can look uh, at the past and, and look at ways in which, oh, well, you know, I, I wonder if, you know, there's been better days here at Cape or there's been better days in my life before. But to remember that even now, Hebrews is telling us God still has a plan and a future and a little more endurance, and you will find indeed that God's Spirit is going to do some amazing things. Uh, Here here at Cape Church of Nazarene, as as, as I look back, I I also look back on ways in which this year has seen uh, uh, just just signs of God at work uh, 
in our midst. I love that uh, we have brought in a new member. Just a couple months ago, you heard his testimony, a special testimony indeed about how this church has been a very important part of his life. This year, we have had another who has, who has joined us in this last year. Uh, Pat, I'm so glad that you are with us and you even got your family with you today. I'm so glad that we see indeed that God is still working and shaping and using ch- this church to uh, change, direct, and remind us of God's love and care in our life. And, 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 I, my, and my prayer and my hope and my belief is that we will continue to be that church. That this new year, as uh, the community starts to say, hey, you know what, we're open again. We're gathering together again. We are going to do life together again. That we are a church that says, hey, we are going to be a part of that life. And we are going to fill the lives of those around us with the promise and hope of Jesus Christ. That we want to go into this year with full confidence and direction from our Holy Spirit. Indeed, with hope that the Lord's going to do marvelous things in our presence. And so I, I want us to begin to prepare and hope for just this. That uh, we will enter over this next month a season and a time of prayer. That this, that this hope that indeed the Spirit of God is going to do something new, something big, and, and desires indeed to shape us is not just my prayer alone. It is shared by fellow pastors on this district, and it's shared by pastors and leaders throughout our denomination. And I'm going to invite you after Easter, as we go into uh, May, we are going to enter and, and I'm going to challenge you to join in prayer every single day for a movement of the Holy Spirit in your life, in our church, in our community, and indeed throughout this world. We're going to be joining with 500,000 other people throughout our denomination to pray every day for spiritual revival, for spiritual renewal. We're going to begin on May 1st, on that Sunday, and we're going to go until Pentecost Sunday on June 5th. I mean, you can keep praying afterwards, but we're going to have a very committed prayer practice. I'm going, to, I, I will, I'm going to hand out to you kind of like, hey, this day, let's pray for this. This day, let's pray for this. Just kind of a, a walkthrough that every day we know, besides our own personal prayers, we are joined together. We are all joined as one saying, God, we need your Holy Spirit in my life. We need your Holy Spirit to, uh, uh, be, to work and move in this church and in our community as well. And we'll be praying for that fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives and those around us. An outpouring that will spur us to continued engagement with the lost, to holy living, to celebrating victory over sin, to living faithfully to our God, and indeed helping a lost world find Jesus Christ, and to have the relationship with God renewed and restored. This is part of God's continued covenant with us. We talk about how uh, Jesus' death and resurrection is a New Testament or a new covenant. We spend a lot of time talking about the Old Covenant, which is initially God's promise of relationship with us. That promise is still there, and it's through the Holy Spirit that changes and directs us and affects our life today so that we can know and be comforted by the presence of God who isn't just watching, isn't just hoping we get things right, isn't just waiting until we mess up or anything like that, but a God who says, I'm so interested in you that I will be with you through it all and that we will find indeed 
that we can all live in the Spirit of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is my hope uh, today, it is my prayer today, Heavenly Father, uh, that we would be reminded that you have loved us and cared for us, that that love has known no bounds. It has gone all the way to the grave, and yet your love has shown that you will reach down to the darkest, deepest moments and you will bring salvation. So, Heavenly Father, I thank you that your salvation is present for us wherever we are in our deepest down moments, that your grace desires to go there and lift us up as well. And, Heavenly Father, it is my hope and it's my prayer that you will also help us. Help us, Heavenly Father, to expect for you to do a new thing in our life that your Holy Spirit will move in a mighty way just like it did in the early church. And that, Heavenly Father, our lives and this church will indeed be what our mission has proclaimed to be, a beacon of hope, a beacon of truth, a beacon of, of living in your presence. And so, Heavenly Father, thank you again for your work in our life. Help us, Lord to respond with faithfulness, and to lean into your grace. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. We hope this sermon has encouraged you with the gospel of Jesus. More sermons are available online at our website, capenazarene.org. May God bless you abundantly as you serve him today.